0: We are made to feel a huge amount of pressure. We're the pride of our families, we're the shame of our families. We're not, you know, put a foot wrong and that's it, you're out. But if you do, we're all right. You know, and it's so complicated because it makes us feel like outsiders because love is conditional when it comes to us. Love is not unconditional. We're made to feel that if you're great if you tow the party line and you do everything we tell you to do, the minute you show any will or any want or any desire, Then you're out. On
1: this episode of Masala Podcast, I'm speaking with Anita Rani. What can I say about Anita? There is just so much. She's a hugely popular TV presenter, familiar to all of us on BBC One's Countryfile. She is the host of Woman's Hour on BBC Radio 4. And, as if that's not enough, she's gone and written a brilliant memoir, The Right Sort of Girl. This girl makes me so proud to be a brown girl. I hope you enjoy this episode. Oh, Sharam, me. Chi Chi. I'm Sangeeta Pillai, and this is The Masala Podcast, a Spotify original where we talk about all those things that we're not supposed to talk about as South Asian women. Sex, sexuality, periods, menopause, mental health, nipple hair, shame, and many more taboos. Join me around my virtual kitchen table as I talk with some incredible women from around the world, exploring what it means to be a South Asian feminist today. Hi, Anita Rani. It is such a pleasure and an honour to have you on Masala Podcast. I can't tell you how excited I am.
0: I'm very excited to be here, Sangeeta. Thank you. Thank Um, you for asking me to come on. I mean,
1: you're um, literally somebody I've looked up to, I think, over the last couple of years because you're one of the rare brown women on mainstream British media, Uh, someone who looks like us, Talks about some of our experiences and it's been so, so wonderful and heartening to see
0: that. Thank you. Yeah. It's been a, a long journey. I'm still on it. Uh, but yeah, it's um it's kind of sad, isn't it, that there aren't that many of us out there. But um I'm old, man.
1: <laughs> I'm
0: older, Anita.
1: So no, that's no, okay. no. We're not
0: old. We're not old. We're in the part <laughs> of the life. And also, I don't I don't believe in this aging nonsense. Like you know, how old you are and age is irrelevant. It's about how vibrant you feel and how youthful you feel. Absolutely. In terms of women, I think like being in your 40s is probably the best place to be. Well, I feel that anyway. So definitely a generation of women now who are saying what they want, getting what they want, pushing boundaries. You know, there was a time not even that long ago where uh, being 40 was, you know, that was it for women. Your career was over particularly if you worked in the creative arts or whatever. Uh, but yeah, those days have gone or are going. We're pushing them away.
1: Absolutely. I, I agree with you. Like I think when I turned 40, it felt like my life really began. Yeah. Like you you don't suddenly give a shit what everybody says or thinks
0: or I don't know what it is. I completely agree. Um, I had a moment as well where I'm like, well, writing this book, I guess is a big part of that. Absolutely. Don't give a shit anymore. <laughs> What is the alternative, right? You've done in your 20s, you're just figuring things out. You've got bags of energy. I moved to London and I was, you know, very much just running around trying to build a career and having a wild time in London as well, having the time of my life. That continued into my 30s, but I also got married. But now I'm like, I don't know, what now? What happens now? Now you've kind of got this platform. And so that's why I wrote the book. I thought it's time to speak my truth and also put my story out there because that's the most important thing. There's so few of us out there and, you know, we've all got stories to tell. And if people want to see me on their screen on a Sunday night on their most beloved TV show, then maybe you want to understand a bit about my experience as well. And in listening to my story, you'll understand something about South Asian women, South Asians, um, you know, migration to this country, all those things.
1: I was reading your interview yesterday in You Magazine, which is an extract from your memoir, and I can't wait to read the book. It's, it's again, so rare to have that perspective, I think, in British media. Um, I wondered if you would tell us a little bit about kind of how you grew up, where you grew up, you know, navigating this world of being
0: Indian at home and being British outside, you know? I think so many people who grew up in Britain, so many second generation kids will relate to that. Uh, So I grew up in a place called Bradford, which is in West Yorkshire. Gorgeous Yorkshire, the most beautiful county in Britain. Absolutely stunning. Um, And there's a real history of uh, lots of mills. um, At the turn of the last century, it was one of the wealthiest cities in the country. There was a great amount of wealth in the north. You had Bradford, which was big for its wool trade, and then Manchester for cotton, which I'm sure lots of people listening in India will, maybe they've heard about, well, people in India will have heard of Bradford, I'm sure. But, you know, these are the places where a lot of first-generation men landed because that's where the work was. So my grandfather actually came to London, went to Birmingham first. I think he just had far too many relatives in Birmingham, then wound his way up to Bradford. And that's where my grandma arrived with my father and his twin sister who were only four so my dad was super young when he got here and then um, yeah had my four aunts and uncles and then I was born and I loved it had this I mean Bradford Yorkshire is I'm so happy that I've got this uh, understanding of uh, northern British culture it's very different to the rest of the country it's very different to London I mean London is its own entity in itself it's very different to anywhere else in Britain um, but there's definitely a very distinct culture. And yeah, I had to live this life where I was very Indian at home or, you know, that's where I learned to be Punjabi. My mum is from India, got married to my dad, came from India, met him at Heathrow Airport, absolute arranged marriage, <laughs> saw a photo of each other. And so they brought me up in that. I had really, my dad's really, really, he's a Yorkshireman. So I've got these two parents with very distinct cultures. So, you know, we did all the things that Indian people do. We, you know, my culture was my culture, very Punjabi. And then I went to a very white uh, girls' school, posh, private girls' school. And then you learn that nobody's really interested in your Indianness. If anything, it's not going to do you any favours to be too Indian. So you dial it down. And that's why my parents sent me to that school, because they wanted me to learn to behave in a certain way and to understand how middle-class white people roll. (laughs) And so that was the plan. Send them to these schools and then they'll be able to assimilate. I mean, that was always the word, assimilation, assimilation, assimilation. But it's bullshit, isn't it? It is absolute bullshit. You can't. It's bullshit. And that's what I say in the book. I say, you know, we were told that if we assimilated, then that's what was required of us. You know, we behave in the right way. We become, to use a phrase from an amazing book by Nika Shukla, you know, a collection of essays, become the good immigrant. Do everything right. Don't speak with an accent. You know, educate ourselves. Work hard, um, bring up your kids well, educate your children. But actually, ultimately, you get into the workplace and it doesn't matter because they still are not going to see you as their equal, sadly. I think women like you are changing that slowly but surely. That's happening. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think there's a generation of us now that have come of age, right, Sangeeta? Yeah, absolutely. We we don't want to. A generation of us have come of age. We're not our parents' generation who very much had to keep their heads down get on with it. Not everyone's parents did this. A lot of parents really empowered their young children, but mine definitely were like, don't rock the boat. That's how you're going to get ahead. Just work hard, work hard and be very positive all the time. But you know, now it's like, actually that's fine, but it hasn't done me any favors because I've got all these feelings pent up inside me that I need to get out. Right? <laughs> I can't keep my head down anymore. And so Lots of people have started speaking out. There's some amazing voices who've started calling stuff out and it's just given uh, everyone, a lot of us, a reason, the ability to speak our truth. Absolutely.
1: There's also something within us about brown women. As brown women, we always somehow don't fit or internally it feels like we don't fit. We don't fit sometimes within our own cultures because we're like told to be quieter than the men that we don't fit into kind of Western culture where we're like, okay, I can't show my brownness so much. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because I really struggle
0: with this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. So I'm the eldest daughter in my family. And um, my experience of growing up is that you instinctively get it, even no matter how liberal your parents are. And My dad, who's not the typical, you know, you will do things. You know, he's cool. He's cool in many ways, he's, you know, but they you still instinctively understand from the minute you're born that you are going to be treated differently because you're a girl so before anyone else discriminated against me my own culture had put me into a separate box and you see it in everything you just see it in the way mothers look at their sons never mind anything else and in my family absolutely it's the girls that get up and we were taught we were taught that this is what makes you outstanding that our daughters can they work hard. Look how successful they are, and they can make chapati for fifty people if they come home. You know, this is what I was brought up to believe was the ultimate. And it's like it's bullshit. Why does it matter whether I can cook? For I mean, it's a great life skill. Don't get me wrong, and I love cooking. But so we are made to feel a huge amount of pressure. Where the pride of our families, where the shame of our families. We're not, you know, put a foot wrong and that's it. You're out. But if you do, we're all right, you know. And it's so complicated because it makes us feel like outsiders. Because love is conditional when it comes to us. Love is not unconditional. We're made to feel that if you're great, if you toe the party line and you do everything we tell you to do, the minute you show any will or any want or any desire, Absolutely. then you're out, right? And I've seen that. I've said. I mean, I won't. I've in my own family. Extended, I mean I'm Punjabi, you know, Punjabis are described as, as the Irish of India. We're a rural farming community with a lot of tribal bullshit baggage. Absolutely. And we came to this land in the 50s from India, from the bins, and you know, a lot of people haven't progressed. The mindset is still the same. And then there's got two, three generations now where kids haven't even set foot in India. So there really is a, yeah, there's a lot going on. And so this, you know, this. I saw families disowning daughters. I was always hearing Sangeeta, I'd listened to my um, two puas, my aunts, talking on the sofa when I was a little one. And they'd always have a gossip about which girl has run away. Oh, so-and-so's daughter's run away. Oh, and it was always someone's daughter running away. And now I look back, I'm like, they didn't run away. They just left. (laughs) They decided to just do what they wanted to do, probably escaping a forced marriage. There's a lot. I haven't even got to the point where we have to fit in with the white community yet. That's a whole other podcast interview. So so, I mean, so what I'm saying is, yeah, yeah, we are, we feel like outsiders because we've been made to feel like outsiders. No, absolutely. Good to be an outsider. It
1: is, and I think it it allows you to say things and do things that you wouldn't otherwise as an insider. I don't know if you find that. You know, I have a, you have a unique perspective on it? Absolutely,
0: absolutely, and I like that unique perspective. I like that we're change makers and that we come with something that is different to other people and in the past I've always felt that it was something to be ashamed of. I was made to feel that my otherness was something to be ashamed of and now I recognize it's my superpower. We're amazing. We're South Asian women well, are yeah. honestly I just I mean all women, all women, but my god, desi girls, like Indian women who have navigated themselves and you know we we know that we are in the UK the highest educated people in Britain are South Asian women. That's because we know no one's going to hand it to us on a silver platter, on a silver pile.
1: on a silver thali <laughs>
0: <laughs> We have to go out and get it for ourselves. So we've we worked damn hard. We also know that it's a great way to escape getting married as well. Just keep going. I'm just educate myself.
1: <laughs> Don't stop. Just keep going. Just keep going.
0: She's got seven degrees. <laughs>
1: Most of us South Asian girls are taught from the same rule book. The second a girl is born into an Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi or Sri Lankan family, anywhere in the world, she is taught to toe the line, follow the rules. We are warned that if we don't follow the rules, we'll end up leading a life of shame, dishonor, poverty, dire sexual diseases. You get the drift. So yes... We, as South Asian women, are conditioned to be good from a very young age, to behave appropriately, honorably. So here we are, fighting the system, which, as we know, is very difficult. But you know this is worth fighting for, not just for ourselves, but for the generations of younger women who will come after us. So, my South Asian sisters, I say this to you. Get your inner Kali on, because this is important. So, Anita, I wonder if we could talk about this fight that we have to fight, this constant pressure that we feel as South Asian women to be these perfect South Asian women. And sometimes that pressure leads to some darker things there's something specifically you mentioned in the book about self-harm. Now, I wonder if you'd be happy to discuss it on the podcast, because I know that you talking about it would help a lot of other women, because I'm sure you're not
0: the only woman who's experienced this. So would you talk about it? That's the reason I talked about it in the book. So it wasn't, I wasn't planning on putting it in the book. So the book is a navigation. It's a, it's a story of how I got to where I am. And within that, you meet my family, you, uh, you know, and I, I take you, I really take you through, it's a cross section of my life. And one of the things I talk about is just being a teenager and how difficult I found that. My family were quite angry and shouty and, you know, there was, it was very patriarchal and it was just a very, very difficult place to be. And also there was a, everyone was working very hard. Everyone was always angry or upset Yeah, you know, it gets to you when, especially when you're the eldest daughter and you very quickly learn to, from being a toddler, probably even from being a baby, you know, assess the adults in the room. Which way is this going to go today? And what can I do to placate this situation? How can I make everyone feel happy? What can I do to make sure that everyone else is feeling okay? And I'm sure there's loads of people listening to this who can relate to that. And then you see your mothers and our grandmothers and our aunts and you feel the pain of their lives and they are silent. I'm going to get emotional. Yeah. So it's really difficult. And I went through a little period of self-harming as a teenager. And it's like, why did I write about it? When I wrote that chapter, it felt like I just, it came, like writing this book was like therapy. It came just out of my fingers. I didn't even know where that came from. And then I read it to my husband in floods of tears. And he said, it's really powerful and you should put it in because nobody talks about it. And I feel sometimes when people see successful women, they think I could never be that because her life must have been so different to mine for her to get there. And what I want to say in this book, especially to young Asian women, is I am you, basically. I come from a place that was chaotic and hard and you can do it. There's You can get out basically. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think so many things there
1: that you've just touched upon, this idea that we have that somebody who's successful kind of, it's all kind of magically happened and we don't see the pain. I think every single one of us, you know, from the culture have a history of pain from our mothers, from our grandmothers, from our families. It's inescapable. And I think Putting that pain on the pages like you have done so bravely, I think, tells other people that that's okay. You know, that's part of us too. And it's okay to express it and okay to admit it. Because the other thing we carry within the community is the this, this shame to sort of say that, you know, it, I, you know, whether it's mental health, whether it's self-harm, whatever it might be, to admit to it feels, everything feels like this huge...
0: In our culture, Any a woman talking about anything, I say it in the book, I can't wait for you to read it, by the way, Sangeeta. I'm dying to. I wrote it for you, right? I wrote it for every Asian woman that feels like her story has not been hard. Apart from, I was thinking about this also writing book, apart from talking about beauty openly and our beauty rituals, everything else is shame. Because beautiful is like, that's it. That's it. You know, we can talk about, oh, what waxing and whatnot.
1: (laughs) Getting my eyebrows threaded or whatever, you know.
0: I mean, I'm great. So we should, right? Because Lord knows some of us have had a lot of hair to deal with. But um, yeah, so I wanted to smash a few taboos and shame. I'm so, over, I'm so sick of shame. Shame cripples us and it has kept us down. And uh, like, what is it? Like, who? What is going to happen if we? So this is almost like an experiment. Like my whole life I've been told you can't say any of these things. Let's see what happens. Is this big boogeyman going to turn up and like, you know, What's going to happen now that I've said it? What is shame? And, uh, you know, people I really admire, one woman, I mean, everyone loves her, is Oprah. She's been a huge hero of mine, and I'm sure, like, she's remarkable. But one thing that has always fascinated me about her is how she has been so open about who she is and what she's done and where she comes from and how that in itself is her power because she makes other women, it just, when you hear her story, it's like, yeah, because we all experience something painful and traumatic. And it's it's so liberating to be able to just talk about it, make other people feel better. So I'm over shame. I'm done with shame. Let men feel the shame for once.
1: I know. I think that's long overdue. Yeah. I mean, and they're
0: they the ones that should be feeling shameful, not us. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, love men. I love some men. I love some men. <laughs> You're um,
1: such a supporter of brown women, you know, I've, I've seen you kind of do that even when I was on, on the show with you and I can just hear it in your voice.
0: And Geetha was on radio too.
1: And Anita was awesome. She was just so warm and wonderful and supportive on the show. It was incredible. Why does it still feel like though that we've got to work a lot harder? To sort of be seen within mainstream British media, it's really hard. There are so few of us. First of all, why do you think this representation is really important,
0: and what can we do to make this easier? A representation is vital because it's the, what it's the reflection of the country we are like why wouldn't we want to see a reflection of Britain as it is today and also our stories are what makers we are nothing more than our stories and it's so narrow-minded it's so single-minded it's so blinkered to not want to talk about Britain as it is and it's fear isn't it it's just fear of real this country is going through a bit of an identity uh, reckoning You know, we're living post-Empire. This country hasn't really understood what empire was. I think they still think it's just Britain went around the world civilizing people and building railways. We know that's not the story. And also people don't understand why we are here. We are here because you were there. We're here because we were invited. And if anything, this country is built on the pain, blood, and sweat of my ancestors, right? That's how this country was built. So yeah, damn straight, they need to hear our stories. And they, and the reason it hasn't happened up until now, I guess, because I don't know, it's just very difficult. I think people don't understand us. I think we are now explaining ourselves. I think people for a long time just thought Asian women were just going to have an arranged marriage and have babies. And that was it. We're just two dimensional. We don't have anything else. I've had to go into so many meetings where people just don't compute what I'm about. Like, oh, what, you might you listen to music other than... Like, I don't know what people think, but they certainly don't think that we are 360 with the whole wealth of desires and experiences and whatnot. So like even working on Women's Hour, which is like, my God, what a gig to get. My first thing was, I want to make sure that we have women coming on to talk about issues, like Asian, Black, Asian, minority, ethnic, women from all backgrounds coming on to talk about issues that aren't just about their ethnicity. Can we finally just have... So I had, uh, we were doing something about electronic music and I had Bishy on. I don't know if you know Bishi, but she's an amazing, avant-garde artist, performer, sitar player, singer, incredible. And she was like, could this be the first time two women have been on Radio 4 who were Asian not talking about being brown? Like, possibly, maybe. <laughs> it's changing. Yeah. I think we need more people in positions of power who don't look, who aren't just posh white men. That will change it. I think that'll change it.
1: And I think you're, kind of one of the people that are leading the change, I think. I hope so. I think so. I know so. I feel
0: like saying that, hearing that from you is um, like making me feel more powerful. Like I think I've got to this point, but I've always just kind of kept my head down a bit. But now definitely feels like I need to fly the flag a bit.
1: Absolutely. Like I feel such a shift in your voice. You know, I've heard you speak so many times, but what you're saying now and what you're saying in the book Like I've never heard that. So it just feels so powerful to me and pained and authentic and real. It really touches me and I'm sure it'll touch a lot of people.
0: Yeah. I mean, I wrote the book from my heart. Like I said, I wrote it through lockdown and it was like therapy. I wrote it for 16 year old me, which means I wrote it for every, every brown woman out there. But at the same time, you know, it's for everyone who's ever felt other. It's for all women. It's a universal story of coming of age. It's also for anyone who's never understood, who wants to understand a different experience. With that comes a bit of complication, right? Because it's like, I'm calling stuff out about our culture. I'm saying some raw stuff about what it means to be an Asian woman. And, you know, with that comes the risk of people going, oh, but your culture, da, 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 see how they treat their women. But you know what? People are always going to say things. So... I mean, never mind other people within our culture, men might feel a bit uncomfortable with what I'm saying. I need to say it because it's true. And if no one says it, then it's, we're all just going to live with this big ball of this tight frustration inside us that we can't, you know, we need to release that.
1: Absolutely. And we've got to be able to talk about all bits of our culture, right? The bits we love, the bits we don't like, the bits that make us uncomfortable, because that's the way we move
0: forward. Yeah, right? definitely, absolutely. And I think the most uncomfortable lean into our uncomfortable bits. It's all new for me as well, you know. You know, I have lived a life believing that everything I was told that if you talk about things it's shameful and it, you know, it's that kind of combination of the British stiff upper lip and everything being a shame. Like it's in and so you know what, I had a big conversation with my mum before I wrote the book. And I said, "Mum, I need to talk about." It. And the, it came about because I was enjoying myself writing about periods or rather lack of talking about periods. About period. My mum didn't talk to me about it. She just didn't. There was no conversation. Yeah. And I got really upset. I mean, the, it's quite a funny chapter, but I got really upset. And I said to mum, and I've not told anyone this story, but I said, you know, mum, that's quite a cruel thing to do to a girl, not explain to her what's going on. And I got, I was like, so, I was crying. Yeah. <laughs> mum said, she said she just didn't know any better. And no one ever talked to her. You know, when my mom got her period in India, my nanny Nanniji, sorry, R-I-P, I love uh, She uh, said to mom, it's because you ate too much Imli, too much tamarind, and now you won't grow anymore and shouted at her. Oh my God. No idea what was going on. So I have this, I said to mom, I need to talk about a lot of stuff. And my mom said, and this is the most powerful thing. She said, do it for me. Say, be my voice, say all the things I could never say. Isn't that just
1: beautiful? It's giving me
0: goosebumps. Yeah, it's amazing.
1: And I think that's exactly it because you're voicing her and her mother and all the women before in your family who haven't had that voice and you're in a position where
0: you do and you're brave enough to kind of do this.
1: My God, that is absolutely phenomenal.
0: Yeah, it's very, I mean, you know, often we are the daughters that are teaching our mothers and they're coming on the journey with us. For, you know, I... I've done a few interviews about this. Most people just want to talk to me about the BBC. So it's really nice to actually talk about what the book's about. The actual contents of it. The actual content (laughs) of the book. Um, Yeah. And that connection to generations of women. And our mother's generation, were almost Victorian. It's like we have skipped five generations in one. And this is happening in India as well not just in Britain. Absolutely. If you go to the metropolitan cities, Absolutely. If you go, yeah. I mean, of course, rural India, you can go into pockets where it's still like they're in the dark ages, but definitely in the cities. Within one generation, everything has changed for women. And mothers are trying to get their heads around it. Like yeah. their daughter's lives are so different to theirs and their daughter's choices and what they want and their unwillingness to go along with what their mothers did without question. And, you know, what my mum is saying is, yeah, Be my voice, but also teach other mothers, like show them that they should listen to their daughters. Because they suffered as
1: well. They suffered hugely, you know?
0: Yeah. And they couldn't,
1: they... They had, they didn't have the opportunities that we do, you know? So yeah, this is incredibly powerful. (laughs) Going... On to something else now. Um, I've seen you a lot on Countryfile. uh, And I've always thought to myself, oh my God, here's a brown woman who's in the British countryside and kind of walking and going to pubs and doing, you know, the North Downs Way or whatever, you know. And I've always thought, why is it that we as South Asians don't really embrace the countryside? And I had a really interesting conversation on my Instagram actually two days ago because I was away in Hampshire and I love it. It really heals me. Uh, And a lot of people came up and said, oh, but we feel really different. People look at us differently. So is it, I don't know, uh, some sort of racism? Is it our own kind of internalised fears? What is it that stops us from going out into the countryside? And I wondered if you had a point of view on that.
0: Yeah, I've thought about it a lot because we were often the only Asian family in the countryside when we were kids like Bradford is set in the most beautiful bit of Britain in Yorkshire. And you can drive 15 minutes in any direction from the centre of Bradford and you are in stunning West Yorkshire moorland, go for lovely walks. And we would often do that because my dad's quite adventurous, but we were always the only Browns in the countryside. Um, There's a whole section in the book about Yorkshire and the Punjabi picnic that my mum, you know, anyone had come to visit us, we'd just bundle them into the car, all 50,000 of us (laughs) crammed in. My parents, you know, anyone from India, anyone, any, any relatives that would come, because they were so—it was such a stunning part. My dad's really outward, you know, we're just up and out. There's no sitting around, and people would love it. And I think, and absolutely, people would look at you, but I don't know if we noticed it. My parents never made us feel like we were any different. I also get that walking in the countryside is a leisure activity, and leisure activities were not priority for people working their asses off to make a living. To progress in a foreign land, it's so. So, are definitely, you know. Now we have a generation that are doing better, and they have opportunities to go on holidays. Holidays just weren't a thing. Yeah. Leisure pursuits yeah. just weren't a thing for that. It's a luxury, you know, wasn't it? Luxury. But we are people of the land. We are rural people. We grow. We are of the land. You know, we are very connected to nature. We know about earth and where our food comes from. We are a culture that all our festivals are still to the moons. You know, we we measure everything in that, you know, we are still, we are so connected to nature. Everything about our religions, if your religion is about nature, it's about every element. And so I'm sure we would happily, I do feel it is an internal fear of feeling other and insecurity. But I would say to people, just get out there. Just go for it. Be brave. Get in the car. Go for a walk. You'll love it. And even if people stare at you, so what? So
1: what? It. Yeah, absolutely. You heard it from Annie Tirani. Go out into the countryside. Yeah, come on, <laughs> come on.
0: Do it. Let's do it en masse. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Let's take our little picnics and go out. <laughs> I love this. Absolutely love this. Um. Talking about South Asian culture, I'd love for you to to share with us particularly favorite bits of the culture. You know, this, you know, I, we could all talk about food and music and saris and whatever, any memory of being young and, or anything, if you're happy to share, that would be lovely to hear yeah, from you.
0: Food, food, food. So food is a running theme throughout the book, as I'm, you know, I mean, come on. Yeah. We've got. <laughs> we. I don't know. It is just, oh my God. Mm, yeah. You see? I'm yeah, my mouth's watering as well. Yeah, already. <laughs> and we roll around the whole culture. My family, mm-hmm. you know, aunts getting together. I talk about the, the way they feed us as being like an army assault. You know, they attack us with the starters. They bowl us over with the mains and they finish us off with the desserts. And everything revolved around food. I talk a lot about my gran, my grandma, uh, Dan Gore, who came to this country. And the way she cooked and the smell of her food. And how she used to use anchor butter for everything. <laughs> Or just going to India and my my grandfather, um, my mum, my maternal grandfather was in the army. So they traveled around a lot. So my nanny mom made food from all over India. So we'd sit in, in Punjab, but we'd have idli dosa and we'd eat um, bani puri. But they'd bring the guy who was coming back, past with the... <laughs> and they'd be like yeah, chart. Like char, oh my God. Mm. And I cook, I love to cook and I cook Indian food and I have to cook it at least twice a week i'm already planning on making dal tonight what kind of dal are you making i'm just gonna make a quick yellow dal because i'm going into nice. town ta- i've got a couple of meetings and i'm just gonna do a quick quick something quick with a nice salad and a jar and char oh long. i love a jar i've got so many jars mm, but
1: you
0: yeah. know when i was a kid it was like oh god my mom's cooking again and or oh, if you're going out to the pub on a friday night my <laughs> <laughs> mom's in the kitchen it's like definitely a timing it's like okay at the last minute, you run into your room, get changed, then run out the door, so you're not the actual Asian smelling of curry in the pub. But now I don't care. Now, yeah, I, yeah. yeah, So, and I talk about the the epic Punjabi picnic. I'm, I'm making brontas first thing in the morning. I'm being mortified, like being like, oh god, why can't we just have cheese sandwiches? Like in <laughs> you know, my mum once actually sent me to bloody school with um, jana and buri in my lunchbox. I was like, I, I mean, that's garbage. that's garbage. Come on, mom. (laughs) um, Clothes, clothes. Oh, my Lord. I adore, adore, adore wearing saris. I don't think I feel more graceful or more feminine than I do when I'm in a sari. Hands down. I just feel different. As soon as I drape that below over my shoulder, my shoulders go back and I sink into my feet a little bit more. And it's like I'm connected to my just my being it's magic and again that was made to feel shame about my Indian clothes growing up here deep shame that you know if you wore Asian clothes and yeah it's a it's a dream of mine to wear a sari to a big award ceremony if I'm ever invited to one you know that would be great I think you would and the BAFTAs in a sari in a silk sari <laughs> in a sari oh my god yes absolutely Oh so, yeah Food, clothes, um, language, love. Lang- I love that I'm. It's a gift to be bilingual, trilingual. Um, there is not an ounce of being Indian. Oh no, you know, the India. You know, being able to visit that land and step off a plane and just roll, just roll. Yeah, yeah.
1: I think of it as almost getting into that skin. Like you're in India and you're in the Indian skin and then you're in Britain and you're in the British
0: skin. And I think that is beautiful. I totally agree. And I'll tell you what else I love. I love that I have an innate understanding of an Eastern culture living in the West because they are completely different ways of thinking. Completely different. I love that we fundamentally have an understanding. You don't have to be religious, but we just get that we are part of something bigger that we are part of nature, that we are connected. Like it's not even a question, right? It's in our DNA almost, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And we have ancient, we understand that we've understood for thousands of years that life should be holistic. Like, you know, we, you mind, body, spirit. It's so, it's taken for, it's just so part of everyday life. And now when people are like, oh, mindfulness, I'm like, yeah, we've just called it art. It's like, it's just <laughs> praying, like it's
1: been done. Like, yeah. Anita, I wonder if we could talk about something um, that might be a little bit difficult, but something that you mentioned in an interview about a miscarriage. I think hearing you talk about it would help other women.
0: Uh, I wrote an article for Red magazine a couple of years ago um, they asked me to do um write an article about for their Jan- New Yearish issue mm. and said, tell us about the year you've just had. And I started writing something. It's like, oh, you know, it's really great and really positive. And I thought, it's just not true. Mm. I've had a really difficult year and yeah, I suffered a miscarriage and and just went, that's all right, I'll worry about that later and I'll just carry on working and I'll deal with it at Christmas. Christmas came and went. And then I went February of the following year and went and climbed Kilimanjaro and had a panic attack. Just absolutely sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. I mean, I was climbing a mountain. I was at altitude. And I was like, I fucking... And I was like, I've had a... You know, I've not dealt with this. Like, I've not dealt with it. And I came home and I was dizzy all the time. And I I went and had blood tests. (laughs) Like, what's wrong with me? And the doctor said have you talked to anybody about your grieving? And I went, what? And she went, it's, it's, you know, it's a loss and you're grieving. And so that was a moment where I just thought, wow, actually your emotions can react and make you feel physically ill, like physical. I've never had that. And it terrified me. And um, I had to write about it because you're right. It's another taboo, isn't it? It's a taboo within society. Within
1: society, full stop and particularly in our community.
0: Huge. And the amount of women from our community who got in touch to say thank you. One in four uh, pregnancies end in miscarriage. One in four. It's, a, it's everyone, you know, it's it's not uncommon. And yet we don't talk about it. Um, and so women just get on with it. Yeah. You know, you just, and you just have to, it's another thing that we're just taught to internalise and yeah. you just not make a yeah. big deal out of.
1: Yeah. And particularly because... As women in our culture, motherhood is is the center of kind of who we are, or we are taught that anyway, you know. From the time you're born, it's like, oh, when you have children, such and such, you know, your mom will say that to you. So to then go on that journey, and maybe it doesn't turn out in exactly the way you would like, that in itself then creates all sorts of things, I think, perhaps a sense of shame, perhaps, I don't know, there's so many complicated emotions there, isn't there?
0: So many. So many. But yeah, you're right. You know, motherhood is seen as the sort of the reason. For our existence. (laughs) Why else are you around if you're not going to have babies? I'm okay with the idea of not having them though, you know. That in itself is interesting because like you say, especially in our culture, if everyone else has this huge expectation, it's for them to, they have to understand as well that this is a possibility that you won't get what you want as well. You might not be the grandmother, but you might not be the mussy, you might not be, you know, and that is quite a big deal for people. Um, I, yeah, and I guess it's another, re- the, It's I'm talking about it again for women from our culture, to make them see that it's all right. It's okay. E- either way, it's okay. Oh, my it? God, it's so okay. It's so okay. And I feel... So much of our existence is put on us. We're forced into doing things. I tell you, it was something I talk about in the book, which I think I should mention here because a lot of your listeners might relate to it or maybe not. But, you know, I met my husband, Puppy, he's amazing. We dated. But the day I got married, we got married like within a year because obviously as soon as my mum found out it was Bupinder Singh, she was like, Chalot, jolly, Chalot, that's it. <laughs> it was, happening. It was all Bells and whistles. I was like 32 and I was made to feel that I was done, right? It was like such a, I was constantly put under pressure to get married. It didn't matter how successful I was. It didn't matter that I was on national TV, that I was living in London, that I'd bought two apart flats of my own. That I was, none of it mattered. The only thing people cared about was the fact that I was unmarried and the amount of pressure I was put under, like drip, 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 drip. <laughs> And then on my wedding day, I was like, I don't know who I'm doing this for. I genuinely don't know. This is definitely not where I thought I would be. I love my husband. I love the guy. He's great. I don't know whether this, this isn't, you know, oh, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it so much. I'm so anti it, particularly when our, ma- it's, our culture is so patriarchal. I recognize from a really young age, what is the equation here? And what are women getting out of it? Nothing. So why the hell would I willingly want to become get married when I don't see what the benefit is for women? And I really couldn't give a shit about wearing a bloody Lenga. Do you know what I mean? That is not, that is not it.
1: It's not my life's dream to sort of wear this Lenga. <laughs> that
0: is not the moment, girls. It's not the moment. I mean, I mean, Lengas are amazing and we can look stunning yeah. in that. But yeah. seriously, it's that is a moment. Yeah.
1: As South Asian women, we are told to be mothers from the minute we emerge from our own mother's wombs. We are trained to look after our little brothers and sisters. We are taught to wait upon all our male relatives, anticipating all their needs and fulfilling them. As young women, we learn that the entire purpose of our existence is to become mothers. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how loving you are, whether you've solved world hunger, invented a vaccine for the deadliest disease. What matters is, are you a mother? Because we are taught that is our only purpose. That is why we were born female. What else? Um, So you've got so much going on. So there's obviously Women's Hour. This is the new memoir coming out. Uh, I think you're doing a TV game show as well. I think I saw on your Instagram.
0: Answer Trap. Yeah, that's been and Gonic. It was for Channel 4 that I filmed yeah, earlier this yeah, year.
1: Yeah.
0: So I've, it's been a very busy touchwood year. It's good. Um, but what next? I am going to let the universe decide. I've spent the last <laughs> 20 years kind of on the treadmill. And, um, you know, Country File is ongoing and I love it. In fact, I'm going tomorrow to, to Yorkshire to do some filming. But the book, when is going to be unleashed and I want to see what the response is to that. And and Woman's Hour is a space I re- host every Friday. I really want to open the audience up. I want to bring in more and more. I don't know how many Asian women listen, but I would encourage more of you to listen if you don't. So I'd love to, you know, develop and grow with Women's Hour. But let's see, let's see how the book lands. It will land. It will.
1: Land really, really well. Like it, this is amazing, and this is so needed in the world right now. In our worlds, kind of our voices out there, uh, being as honest and authentic as you are being—not just the pretty stuff, you know—it's—it's it's everything. And there's such a need for this, Anita. And yeah, I'm so excited that this
0: is in the world now. Thank you, Sangeeta, and more power to you. Do you know you are po- instrumental in it? You know your podcast. Wow. Well, in that thought process, you know, there's so many different things. When I said earlier that people are speaking out and you created this podcast, I'm like, well, you know, people need to hear, need to hear these stories. And you're talking about these issues that are so important. And, you know, I thought I've got a platform and I could tell you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you my culture, my fat, my upbringing was all of that, all of that. Let's lift the lid. Um, So thank you keep up the great work. And yes, we, are, we, are, we should support each other. I think it's really important. You know, far too often we're I don't know, not even taught to compete. I think because we recognize in the space, there's like only one space. For, but, and now the world is different. And, you know, there's more power in us. Very powerful. Very powerful. And the more we
1: lift each other up, the more there is to co- kind of go out into the world. I think it becomes two of us is like 10 of us. Versus one of us, you know, it's a huge difference.
0: Also, there is the inner Kali raging. Yes, <laughs>
1: kicking ass. Um, I wonder if you wanted to leave um the listeners with a couple of bits of maybe three bits of advice for South Asian women and girls listening to you today. Things that you wish you had known when you were younger.
0: Oh my god. These are big, like, oh, now don't ask me. I mean, I'll just, I give terrible advice. <laughs> First of all, I think, you know, you know, your parents made their choices about their lives. You make your choice about yours. Just do what feels right for you. Even if it means upsetting people, they are not always right. We are taught to make, we're made to believe that our parents know everything and that they are right. And if we want to do something that goes, and that's not true. They lived within the experience, their small experience that they had. Your life experience is totally different and possibly far greater than theirs and way more relevant. So as hard as it may be, I would encourage young women to make, do what they want to do. And the other thing, and this is something I've not said out loud, but I've been thinking a lot about it, is give yourself a break. It's actually not your fault. Whatever you are carrying, whatever that, Whatever that is, whatever guilt you're feeling, it's not your fault. So give yourself a break. You've Asian, I'm going to cry now. I think Asian, you're Asian women are like, we are warriors. We are warriors. And we have seen our mothers suffer and we carry the trauma, but it is not your fault. So just go forth, kick ass, be brilliant, and be brave. Wow. What
1: else is left to say? But thank you. My God, that was incredible. Anita Rani, you've you've made me so happy and you've made me cheer up and both at the same time. So thank you so much for being a Masala podcast. Oh my god, what an honor.
0: Thank you for having me. And just yeah, keep going, Sangeeta. The podcast is great. Love it.
1: Thank you so much. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in this episode, please head to the show notes where I've listed some information about organizations which can offer help and support. I'm Sangeeta Belai. Thank you for listening to the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original. Masala Podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras. What's that all about? Soul Sutras is a network for South Asian women, a safe space to tell our stories, a place to reclaim our bodies, to tackle taboos within our culture, to be exactly who we want to be. Get in touch and tell me your stories about your taboos. Check out my website, soulsutras.co.uk or get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala Podcast was created and produced by me, Sangeeta Pillai. Edited by Orbis, the studio. Opening music by Sonny Robertson. Be sharam but means, Gandhi. Hi, hi, bad Betty.